Hey, happy Father's Day, Resonate. Man, it's good to see you guys. Every single person in this room, all the way to the back, to every person that is joining us online, our campus there, and also our Hayward family. Hey, welcome. So glad that you're joining us in a very, very important day. It's Father's Day, and we want to celebrate it because our culture don't do a great job in celebrating Father's Day. Do you know that Father's Day is ranked as the 20th holiday to be celebrated here in America? 20th, okay? First is obviously Christmas, Jesus. Then, then comes second, Mother's Day. Then Father's Day. <laughs> Halloween is number six, okay? Christopher Columbus, 16, okay? Four after that is us fathers. Hey, listen, dads, um, we think you're a big deal. If, a, if the culture is not making us a big deal, we think you are an incredibly big deal. Uh, Billy Graham said this, a good father is one of the most important, unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. And I really believe that, especially in the church. So I'm incredibly grateful for you. If you're spending Father's Day in one of our campuses today, man, you're a studly dad. So grateful for the work that God is doing. Could we in all of our campuses celebrate our dads? Yeah, amen. Hey, we uh, started a sermon series called Free Indeed, and um, it's been pretty incredible. In fact, the Lord is doing something each and every week, just liberating people from sins of the past, things that they've been um, just in bondage of for, for many, many years. And, 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 and I read you an email last week as I started my sermon of an of a older saintly woman who actually uh, released from her bondage for 65 years. She's carried this guilt and shame, and she was free indeed in Jesus' name. And this is so incredible because this week I got even more emails, more notes just declaring how they've been set free from the bondage of bad marriages to healthy marriages to secret sins that they've been free from. And this is why it's so important for you and I to be in this moment today in church because when the people of God gather and when, when the Holy Spirit comes and we are encountering him together, there's just, it only takes a moment for God to just free us from the sins of the past, amen? And this is why we're together today. And we're talking about another sin that enslaves us. And today we're talking about sticky sins or the kind of sins that are stubborn. Have you ever heard of stubborn fat? You know, stubborn fat, they're the last fat family to go, right? I mean, you could exercise, you could be on a diet, you could be doing a lot of things. And man, you could be losing weight and you could look great. But for some reason, right around here, right, the pork belly, you know what I mean? Like that this side is just really stubborn. It just won't go, right? You could be on the Peloton for 23 hours and yet this part just will not release from you, right? In the same way, there are certain sins in our lives Maybe you've, you've been going to church and in Bible studies and in MCs and in deep prayer and a lot of things have happened to you. But for some reason, these sins keep following you and tracking you and you keep falling back to it. It might be porn. It might be substance issues. You go back to the drink. It might be even more subtle as bitterness, maybe hate, maybe gossip. These things that we just tend to go back to judgmentalism. 
negativity, things that God would not be glorified with, that we continue to fall back on. And so the question is, how do we set free from them? How can we be set free? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're going to read, we're going to study the entire book, uh, entire chapter, but we'll, we'll look at, when we'll read uh, the first four verses here, starting from verse 19 to 22. And, and it, in all of our campuses, would you please rise for the reading of God's word, and we'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. Jeremiah 2, verse 19, this is the word of the Lord. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy a pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. That is the word of the Lord for this great Father's Day weekend. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Hey, three questions we want to answer today why, what, and how? Why are we still stuck in sin? And, and what's behind these stubborn sin? And third, how, we, how could we be set free from it? They're all very incredibly important questions. So if you're taking notes, why are we stuck in our sin? Now, first, I want to give you a scientific and a spiritual explanation as to why we sin in the same way over and over and over. There's a book called Atomic Habits written by James Clear. And it's a fantastic book. And there, the book starts with an incredibly insightful premise. That's to say that every human being on the face of the planet all have pretty much the same goals. We want to be healthy. We want to have good relationships. We want to succeed in the things that we do. So we set goals. Every person is set out. Now, all of these people that fail and things like that, it's, it's not because they don't have these goals. Every single person sets out for these great goals. But for some reason or another, who you are today to what you want to become, there seems to be a delta. And the question is, why? Why is that New Year's resolution is so hard to accomplish? You know, this New Year's resolution, you said you wanted to lose 20 pounds. You got on the scale in January. I'm like, oh, man, I need to lose 20 pounds. You got on the scale like yesterday in June, you're like, all right, 30 pounds to go. Let's go. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> why, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Is it that we just continue to fail in setting good, reasonable goals? And James Clear says, no, no, it's not about setting goals. He says this, we do not rise to the level of our goals. He says we fall to the level of our habits. Did you catch that? We do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our habits. It's the habits that we, it's the common denominator, you see. And what this means conversely then is that if you want to reach, if you want to advance, if you want to grow and fulfill your goals, then it's all about establishing some holy habits in your life. 
Yeah, that's the holy habits that you want to aim for. And so this is how it works scientifically. You see, whenever you do something that results in immediate pleasure or comfort, there's something that happens in the brain, and our brain gets hit with this powerful chemical called dopamine. Dopamine is like a narcotic. Man, it just hits us, and we want it over and over and over again. In the same way, in the morning, the first thing we do when we get up is to look at our phone, and we scroll through how many people liked our messages or our posts. Boom, dopamine. See, or when you're bored and you're in the privacy of your own space or whatever, and you look at porn, dopamine. Or you're driving from home and you're going home and from a long day at work and you're depressed and sad and you decide to eat your sorrows away by going through a drive-thru at McDonald's and you take a bite of a Big Mac, dopamine. Dopamine hits. And what scientists say that the more you do something to comfort yourself and in that moment where you find yourself pleasure and dopamines hit, your brain, you are creating what is called a neural pathway. A neural pathway is these little grooves in your brain that through habit, through this dopamine, that you continue to channel all of your behavior. In fact, once you thought it was a choice that you're making, but after a while, it's no longer a choice that you make. The choice actually chooses you. And you can't help but to continue to do them. You see, it's like water on mud, more water flows. You think that the water has a choice to go wherever it wants to. And yet when that channel of that groove gets created, no longer does the water have choice. It actually goes through that particular groove over and over and over again. And that's kind of like our behavior. Now, let me give you a spiritual picture of this. Now, we've been talking about chains a lot. And so let's consider this chain. Many of us think, man, we made a choice and we need to stop making choices, but it's not as easy as it sounds, right? Because always it starts with the choice and we think it's a choice to just stop doing the choice. And yet, if that was the case, we would stop all the sins that we ever commit. But that's not the case because spiritually, what is a choice eventually turns into a habit. And when the choice turns into a habit, then it creates a link And it becomes really automatic and it becomes a reflex. And what reflex is different than the habit is that habit, you know you're doing them. Reflex, you don't even realize you're doing it. Like picking up the phone, you don't choose to pick up the phone. It's just like a reflex all of a sudden now. You just, have you ever like during dinner picked up the phone and you're like, why is the phone on my hands? You know, that is because all your choices have become habits. And now have become a reflex. And once it becomes a reflex, it mutates eventually to, it's not about what you do, but who you are. And the devil loves to create an identity in you. This is who I am. I cannot change. And you start resolving to who you think you are, and therefore you are completely in chains. And this is the problem. The devil wants to do something to us today. He wants us to make us believe that we're actually stuck. We're chained. Because of the choices of us not wanting to do porn anymore, we try and we're stuck. 
and the choices of us not wanting to judge or even leave the begrudging relationship that we have. Like, I don't want to hate that person. It seems like we're stuck because we keep fantasizing about them. We keep hoping that something bad will happen to them. And you know those thoughts come into your heart and you're like, I don't want to have them anymore, Lord. And you just keep feeling that it's stuck because you see choices have become habits. Habits become reflexes and reflexes have become your identity. And because it's your identity, you're like, I'm stuck. I can't do anything anymore. But Christians, here is the good news. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are set free from bondage. We're set free from the bondage of our chains. And, and the Bible will say, whom the Lord's son sets free is free indeed. You and I are set free because once we were in bondage of Adam and now we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, whatever the power and whatever experience that Christ has experienced, including the power of the resurrection where he took the dead and made it alive. Now that power of the resurrection lives in us. And now we have the same power to exercise to our dead bodies and to our dead sins. And the prison doors is wide open and we could walk out. You and I as believers in Christ are set free people. Amen? Amen. Man, we don't have to be stuck. We don't have to be stuck. We're not in bondage anymore. And that is incredibly good news. Then, what is behind our sin? That's why we sin, but what's behind our sin? Now, let's get to our text here. Because Jeremiah is one of the last prophets that God sent to Judah before they were taken into exile. Now, this whole book is a series of sermons that God preached through the mouth of Jeremiah. And chapter 2 is specifically about sin. And so let's draw some insights from them. Uh, just a couple things. Number one, you have to understand that sin is rejecting God. It's rejecting God. Verse 19, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Now, do you notice its language here? It's intervention language. And you say, you know, um, it's like when you're confronting a beloved family member of their alcoholism. And you say, hey, don't you know? Don't you see? Don't you realize? Could you see that this is a problem? And Jeremiah has the same tone here addressing us about our sin. Don't you see and realize that you're forsaking God? That's what he says. And he's pleading with us to be aware of something that we're radically unaware of. Well, let me put it this way. According to the Bible, it's not fatal to be a sinner. But what is fatal is to deny that you're a sinner. You see, alcoholics, it's not fatal to be an alcoholic. You see, if you get help, it's only fatal if you are in denial of your alcoholism. That's when it gets really bad. That's when it could lead to fatality. You see, and, and that's why in AA meetings, the very first thing that you say is what? Like, my name is Ryan and I'm an alcoholic. This is a confession. Now, now this is, this is interesting in the same way. Now, I'm not talking about when somebody says in some general way, ah, oh, we're just all sinners though. We're all sinners, right? You see, that's a cop-out. Because sometimes we use overgeneralization of all humanity to not address our own personal sins. You see, you don't see an alcoholic and say, oh, you know, we're all alcoholics to some degree, right? They don't say that. They say, I am. 
And in the same way, many of us have treated the offenses that we've caused God and said, you know what, ah, we're all sinners, right? No, that's not a true confession. And because we're not truly confessing, and because we don't really know how we're sinning often, even though we know that some general way we're sinners, we're forsaking God. We're forsaking our need to be saved. We're forsaking God's heart to want to save. And therefore, we're forsaking the personhood of God in our lives. Here's the second thing. Sin is not just forsaking God, but it's reducing God. Reducing God. Verse 19 Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Listen, the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord. Here's so fascinating that it says the essence of sin is not having fear for him. Isn't that interesting? The way you define sin is you don't have fear for me. Now, there are two types of fear in the Bible addressed to God. One is the fear of punishment. Like when you are fearful, that's like according to 1 John chapter 4, it says, you know, fear of punishment is sin. And so we, we, we get fearful of God punishing us, that God's going to do something, and so we're scared. That's a legitimate fear, okay? And, but know what happens. When that happens, when we're struck by uh, the predicament that perhaps punishment and we're going to be judged, then we're paralyzed. We're, we're struck with fear, um, you know, um, I learned this week uh, that some of our staff uh, are deathly afraid of spiders. Like itty-bitty ones. Like not the Australian ones, but like the Californian ones. You know, little tiny ones. They're, they're, they scream. It's so interesting. We're so big and the spider is so small, but I don't see the spider screaming. It's worse screaming. We're like, ah, we're, we just can't stand it. And once that happens, guess what? They can't even work. They can't even type. They can't write an email. They can't have a meeting. Why? Because fear leads them to paralysis. They're literally awestruck. They're paralyzed, right? Yet the Bible talks about another kind of fear, and that is being in awe. Wow. That's what it means. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14, it says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Blessed is the one who has all of God. Again, in Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, but, you, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared or you may be revered. And in this case, once again, this means being in awe, being in awe. Now, notice the similarities between the, the fear of punishment and the, and the kind of fear that draws our awe. They both consume you. They both consume you because when you're consumed by the Lord, you cannot do anything but to constantly think about him, reflect on him. I'll put it this way. Do you remember when you first fell in love? I mean, your first love, the puppy love, you know, the deep, meaningful, genuine, eternal fifth grade love. Yeah, you know that love? Man, that happened to me when I was in fifth grade. Her name was Angie. I mean, doesn't that sound sexy? Angie. Right? She was, man, Angie was like my girl. She just didn't know it. <laughs> right? And man, I loved Angie. And man, once she came into my brain, I could not eject her out of my mind. I mean, I was so consumed by her. Every thought 
captive towards Angie. Everything that I did, do I smell like Angie? Would Angie like this? Would Angie like that? What is Angie thinking? Is she thinking of me? Maybe, maybe, probably not, maybe. You know, have you ever, I mean, remember back now the kids actually count and collect likes, you know. Back then we used to collect stickers, (laughs) Remember those scratch and sniff stickers? You have sticker books and you cut and you trade the stickers, man. I, I used to look at those stickers thinking, oh my gosh, would Angie like this? Oh my gosh, it has extra glitters. It's an ice cream cone. Maybe she'll like it. You know, and I used to think about it. Remember we used to make like, we didn't write emails or text people. We had like little letters that we folded, right? Pull here. Remember that? You pull here and just like transformers, it becomes like, I like you. You know, whatever it is, right? I remember just dreaming up all these letters that I never gave her. But man, I remember dad took me to, uh, took our family to Grand Canyon and we're driving on a boring old drive in the backseat. I was just soaking because I was far from Angie. And I was thinking, what is Angie thinking? I wish I was near Angie. I was completely consumed by Angie. When you're in awe of God, you do the same thing. God, what are you thinking? I wonder what you love. I wonder if you like this. I wonder if you love me. I wonder how you created nature. I wonder if you miss me. Whatever it is, you're just consumed by the love of God, his thought, you're completely captive to his glory and his greatness. So sin, check this out, sin is when you are in awe more of something than God. That's how sin is. You see, you're more captivated by sin than him. And this is why we lie. This is why we cheat. This is why we gossip. You see, eventually it's an awe problem. Well, how does this work? Consider worry. The more awe you have, for the power of that particular circumstance that is going wrong, instead of you having all of the power of God, then you worry. You see, you're giving all to worry. Uh, how about guilt? The more all of the depth of your sin, then the height of God's grace, then naturally you're going to actually feel more guilt because you're giving all to that. How about anger? The more all you are of your own wisdom as to how things should play out rather than being all of God's sovereignty and his goodwill, then you'll fall prey to that and you'll be angry about it. Do you see how this works? And this is why the psalmist says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You need to be more awe of him. You need to say, Holy Spirit, would you open up my eyes and my heart to see the grandeur, the glory of yourself that you may consume all of me see because your worries are gone when you see him more greater than your circumstance that your guilt is gone when you see him greater than than the sins of your life that your anger is gone when you see God's wisdom far greater than the one that you have of your own that's how it works it's an all problem third sin is replacing God Replacing God. Yeah, we rejected God, we reduced God, but we, we replaced God. Look at verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and I burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. God just called us a whore. All right. 
Well, let's, let's look at this. All the high school went. All right. Look what God has done. He's freed us from bondage. You see, the yoke that we're in, he freed us. And yet we keep going back to his old masters. Now, this is about idol worship because, you know, the context of Jeremiah 2 is that there were idol worship of Baal, the false god. And, and we, you and I now worship other things. And here, high hills signify transcendence and green trees signify fertility. And God here uses sexual metaphors as to say that you and I are adulterers and that we're cheating on him. Because Jeremiah 2, the way it starts in verse 1 and 2, it starts with the love relationship between the young bride and God. And we're the bride. And we're in love. Everything's good. And yet we committed adultery to him, towards him. And that we cheated on him. We're deciding to sleep with other idols. And this is what is happening, that we're fully consumed. Can I show you how this works? There are four phases that every person goes through when, when they get caught in these sticky, stuck sin. First, you always go through promotion, which is you promote something beyond God. You promote something. Verse 27, it says, you who say to a tree, you are my father. Or you say to a stone, you gave me birth. Do you see what's happening? That's a promotion. Now, there's nothing wrong about wood or stone, but when you are elevating those things to the highest place, then that's when it becomes sin. See, you say to them, you made me. You define me. You're my father. I'm nothing without you. If you start singing a Whitney Houston song to say, I'm nothing, 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 if I don't have you. When you start saying that about your children, your job, your spouse, or whatever, your hobbies, whatever it is, you're saying, you're my maker. You're my father. You're my identity. You're my savior. You see, you're promoting them to God. But secondly, once you promote them, then comes addiction. Then comes addiction. Verse 24, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? Keep your feet from going bare and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreign gods, and after them I will go. It's hopeless. Now, Jeremiah two, I mean, uses two metaphors here to describe our addictive pattern that came from promotion. Now it's become an addiction. First, he compares us to an animals in heat. Now, you realize that animals don't have any restraint when it comes to their desire to procreate, Right? Zero desires. You've seen that. If you have pets, you know that. Okay. If you've ever gone to a zoo, this happens every single time. You see two zebras going at it, and all of a sudden your kid goes, Daddy, what's that? <laughs> right? What are they doing? Is that a piggyback ride? <laughs> right? And you're like, uh. Now, interestingly, never a male zebra has ever come to a female zebra and say, hey, hey, uh, before we get, could I, could I buy you dinner? Never, 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 never such chivalry or, or a female zebra saying, honey, not now, not in front of the kids. I mean, never, never that modesty. Animals, when they decide to do it, they just do it, right? Zero modesty, zero chivalry. They're all driven by animalistic instinct. And this is the way God's describing us. The second picture is one of somebody who's running in the desert Dying of thirst, their feet are bare, not because they didn't have shoes, but they keep running so the shoe has worn off. 
and they are dying of thirst. They shouldn't run in the desert, but look at what that person is saying. I must keep going. I must keep doing this in spite of the pain. You know what that is? That's addiction language. See? By the way, an easy test to whether you're addicted to something or not is when it's taken away from you, okay? And that you start going crazy. You see, so how can you tell if somebody's an alcoholic? Not when they drink. I mean, a lot of people drink. I drink, but I'm not an alcoholic, I don't think. <laughs> so that, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. But what makes you an alcoholic is when you take the drink away and all of a sudden you just get destroyed. You can't be normal. It's not okay. You see, when things are taken away from you, okay, you come crumbling. It is the absence of something addictive and a response to them that reveals our addiction. Third, desertion. Promotion addiction then leads to desertion. The Bible says, Everything that we promote as idols will eventually desert us and can't save us. Look at what God says in verse 28. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. Wow. And of course the answer is they cannot save you. And could I just be so blunt here? Everything in this life will eventually desert you. Your children will desert you. Your spouse will desert you. Your job eventually will desert you. You'll either lose it or you'll have to give it up eventually because you'll be dated. Even your talents will desert you. Do you know that Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, once played for the Washington Wizards? Yeah. Why? Because his talent deserted him. Okay? That's why. That's why he lost the talent. He just couldn't play anymore, so he had to hang up his shoes. Everybody, every, every idol leaves you. It deserts you. Lastly, when it deserts you, it devastates you. This is the cycle. You know, Ronda Rousey was arguably the most dominant female MMA fighter in the world. And yet when she was fighting the radically underdog, underperson, you know, opponent, Holly Holmes, it was going to be a sure bet that she was going to win. And yet Holly Holmes kicked her on the head, and she fell, and she got knocked out. She got knocked out. She lost her belt. She was no longer her champion, uh, the champion. And then she went on the Ellen show, and this is what she said. She said, honestly, I was in the medical room down in the corner, and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself at that exact second. And I was like, I'm nothing. Nothing. No, I just added that. Nothing. What do, I, what do I do anymore is what she said. You see, every idol will abandon you. Your children, your work, your politics, they all make terrible idols. They're all good things. They just don't make the best thing. See, and so that's the cycle. So lastly then, how can we be set free from the sin that we're stuck in? See, if you and I are tired of constantly just sinning over and over and over again, if you could just be so real with that. And this is what I'm about to tell you in the next 10 minutes. It's going to be liberating and freeing. And remember, it's not about just setting simpler goals and just doing stuff. Because that hasn't worked. If that worked, then you would be 
not sinning the way you are. And so it's not about setting goals. Remember, we do not rise to the level of our goals, but we fall to the level of our habits. So we must set holy habits, holy habits. And could I share with you just from my life, and this just comes from my life, that I've been battling sin ever since I was a Christian. I realized that I was in sin. I realized and noticed my idols. And so I've been fighting them. And this is honestly my four-step plan to how to be victorious over sticky, stuck sin. And my hope and my prayer is that you would actually consider these things very seriously. Four things that I've done to create holy habits. Number one, identify your gods. Identify your gods. And the way you do it is to simply ask two questions. Number one, what gives me my ultimate sense of worth and value? This is very important for you to ask genuinely in the most vulnerable times. What gives you the value? What's so important to you? What do you want to be known for and known as? The second question is, what if taken away from me will make me want to quit life? What do you say, man, if you take this from me, I'd rather die. What do you say about that? And and initially, that seems really glorious. Like your children, man, if I can't have my children, then I'd rather die. Well, that seems like valor, but no, that's not. That means they're an idol. What do you say about your, your job, your personality, your wealth, your parents, your talent? What is it? Because eventually, when you really deeply think those things out, that is your functional God. That is your functional God that you worship. So the first step of freedom is to identify the God that you're sleeping with. Here's the second thing. You must personalize your sins. And could I tell you, this practice in my life has helped me probably the most. Jeremiah 2 starts with this imagery of two people in sweet love. That's us and God. And it's very personal. And now if you want to understand sin, you have to understand it this way. You can no longer see it just simply as breaking laws. Because this is what we do. We always say, well, you know, if I sin, I broke a law. I'm sad. I shouldn't break laws, right? And you become a moralist. But that's not actually how you overcome sin. Do you know how you overcome sin? When you stop realizing that your sin is not simply breaking laws, but it's actually breaking God's heart. It's personal. It's personal. You're breaking God's heart. Even when you sin against somebody else, all sin eventually is against God himself. After all, he had to die for us. You know, some of the greatest pain I've ever seen on this side of life is a pain that a couple goes through when one of them cheats on the other. And I've, I've been a pastor long enough to just sit with many couples who are trying to reconcile this deep, painful moment in their life. And when I'm just watching them, when I'm seeing the distrust and the fabric of that covenant just unraveling, the love, the commitment, the history, the memory, the intimacy that they've all created, and yet it's being lost because one person decided to cheat on the other, the deception the sin behind it, it is devastatingly painful, devastatingly. And could I just give you 
an imagery that when we sin against God, it's not an oopsie-daisy that we just broke the law. We're breaking God's heart. That we're married to him. But now he's experiencing what a spouse might experience when they find out that they're cheating. And beyond that, it's like all the more, right? When you see God, who is all wise, all knowing, all holy, all perfect. It must be true then that when we break his heart, the kind of heartbreak that he experiences is infinitely more greater than the heartbreak that we experience. He gets so broken. It penetrates so deep. Have you ever seen your sin against God like that? Have you ever looked at him and said, I don't want to sin like that against you, Lord? Or do you simply say, well, there I go again. I broke the law. I broke something that I shouldn't have. Oh, well, his heart breaks. Do you ever see it that way? Third, remember his grace. Remember his grace. This is where the gospel comes in because for some of us, We've never been able to change our ways because all we do is when we sin, we scold our hearts. Oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. But perhaps we need to no longer scold our hearts, but we need to melt our hearts. And until you personalize your view of sin, your heart will never be melted. Here's what I remember. I mean, here's what I'm saying. Uh, I remember sitting with a couple in particular and the husband just had confessed uh, that he, he's been cheating on his wife. And all of his intention was to leave her because he loved this other woman. And they were right across me on this small couch that I have in my office. And I sat. And as he was detailing and confessing all of his sin in great detail, all I could see is his wife just shriveling up and great insecurity, deep hurt, wounds. I could almost hear her thinking, was I not enough? Could I have done something different to make you, how dare you do this to me? And she was going through a flood of emotions, and I just saw her hot tears just dripping down, dripping down her face. In the Bible, there was another confrontation between Jesus and another adulterous person. She'd been dragged through the center of the city. And she was about to be stoned for her sins. And Jesus condemns everybody else to not do it. And then he says to that woman, has, has anybody condemned you? And she looks and says, no, Lord. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Remember my grace. And from that day on, we don't know exactly how it played out, but I perceive her experience of that grace set her free to say, I never want to sin to a God that's so gracious to me like that ever again. You know, to that story of the couple that was on my couch with her hot tears flowing down, I remember him detailing all this ugliness of his side of the story and what he intends to do. He even said, I, I love this other woman. I no longer love you. And she turns to him and says, I still love you. And I forgive you. 
bifurcation. That man was never the same. Upon the forgiveness, the radical forgiveness, the gospel forgiveness from his wife, whom he betrayed, he hurt. It revolutionized his life. The grace that came into his life changed him and said, if that's the woman that I betrayed, I never want to betray you again. And he left the other woman reconciled in deep repentance. And for 10 years now, they've been together thriving in the Lord. Isn't that great news? This is the result of the gospel. This is the result of the gospel. Remember his grace. Remember his grace. So you see, you have to identify your God. You have to personalize your sins. Then you have to remember your, his grace so much so you're like, I don't want to hurt a God that is so forgiving like that ever again. The lastly, you must read God's word. You must read God's word. See, I read a study that pointed out that there's only one habit that a Christian can undertake that results in every other holy habit naturally flowing out of them. And that's just daily being in God's word. Daily. Daily being in God's word. Listen, Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God, listen, it's not a historical document. It's living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen what it does. It pierces you to the division of soul and spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. See, it could become something that just deeply penetrates you and changes you inside and out. So here's my conviction. The devil does not have to destroy you if he could simply distract you. And you and I are so distracted with our phones. You and I are constantly looking at it. We don't even know that we pick it up. Some of you are looking at the phone right now, pretending to take notes. <laughs> I see you. There's the same kind of people that fall asleep with that thing and it hits them in the face. <laughs> if that ever happened to you, you know you're guilty. The Lord, I mean, you've been distracted and Satan distracts you. He distracts you. And as long as you are fixated on your phone, you cannot be fixated on Jesus. And you cannot be fixated on God's word if you're fixated on all these other things. And to the degree that you decide to turn the pages of scripture is when you start seeing the pages of your own life turn. This is the reality of the power of God's word. And I would just want to encourage you. If you have not been in God's word every single day, I want to challenge you starting tomorrow that instead of grabbing your phone, you're like, oh, no. Pastor's watching. Just kidding. I'm not watching. <laughs> you say, I'm, I'm going I'm to turn to God's word for one minute. Just one minute. I did this. The first thing, I just tested it, right? I did it. I read 11 verses in one minute in Hebrews chapter 8 today, this morning. Hey, you know what? I calculated it. If you just read one minute every single day, you could read the book of Romans nine times in a year. If you read just three minutes, three minutes. If, if some of you go to the bathroom and take your phone, right? For 30 minutes. <laughs> But if you read just three minutes, three minutes of the word every single day, you could read through the entire New Testament in a year. That's more than what you've read in a long, long time. 
and it's doable. This is the way you create holy habits in your life. Now, let me close this way, okay? Some of you are thinking, that's great, that's great. You know, I want to do it, I want to do it, and this is what you're going to do. I'm going to do it, I'm going to create holy habits. You're going to start reading, you're going to read in Jeremiah 1, yeah, I got that done. And you'll read them like, oh my gosh, God called me a whore, forget this. <laughs> You're just kind of abandoned. I'm like, oh, you'll, you'll get through a section. Like, I, I, I don't understand this part. I mean, it's talking about some donkeys and a guy in the desert. I'm like, I'm out. And you're going to abandon it. And what you started for about four or five days, you're going you're to lose it. You're going to lose steam. And could I just encourage you? Go again. Go again. There's a great story in 1 Kings chapter 18. The prophet Elijah, he was a King Ahab, the, the ruler of Israel at the time, Judah. And, and um, Judah has been experiencing a great drought for three and a half years. And God promised him rain, spoke to Elijah. And so God told him to go to Mount Carmel. And so he goes to Mount Carmel with his servant. And he tells his servant, I want you to go and climb, and climb this mountain and tell me, look over into the seas and tell me what you see. And so this, this servant is like, okay, what God promises, man, there's always, there's always going to be a payoff. This is what I'm going to do. So he gets up to the top. It's a little shorter than, you know, Mission Peak. And so he gets up there and he looks to the seas and sees nothing. So he runs down, hey, Elijah, nothing. I guess it's going to be later. And Elijah goes, do it again. He said, huh, again? Yeah, go again. All right. So he goes up there. He's like, I don't know why you, you know, God makes a promise. Yeah, you know, there is the payoff. But I don't know when the payoff is going to be. Well, he gets up there. He's like, maybe now? Nope, nothing. So he comes down and says, Elijah, Nothing. I'm pretty sure God's not going to send it right now, right? And he's like, go again. Again? Go again. So he goes up there, and this time he's probably really bitter, right? He's like, man, Elijah, I don't want to listen to you, but a chapter before, you slay 450 prophets of Baal, and so I don't want to be struck down like that, and so you know what? I'm just going to listen to you, but begrudgingly, I know God promises, but I don't see no payoff. Not now. Might come next generation. He looks, nothing comes down. Elijah, you see nothing. Go again. Fifth time, go again. Sixth time, go again. Finally, seven times, he goes up again, and he sees something. It's a cloud that is the size of a hand. And he rushes down, rushes down. And like, Elijah, Elijah, I saw a cloud a size of a hand. And he says, prepare the chariots because the flood is coming. Well, you and I make the mistake when we claim the promises of God and look for the payoff. Is that when the payoff doesn't come immediately, we forget about the promise. And that's why we forget about the payoff. But what we forget most is between God's promises and his payoff comes our process. And it's in the process where God starts changing you. That it's just not the reward of the payoff that comes. 
that God uses our journey to go again and to go again. So there will be days when you'll read God's word. I'm like, man, God called me a whore. <laughs> go again. I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't get anything. Go again. He called me unclean. Go again. Go again. And eventually, you'll run into what? God loves me still. And that little cloud in your life through the process will become something massive, a flood. And it will transform you. That one day, the secret sins of your life will be let go through the process of you going again. So go again. Men of Resonate, go again. Women of Resonate, go again. Students of Resonate, go again. Again and again and again until the payoff comes. But until the payoff comes, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the process because God is using your process and mine to glorify himself and to transform us. Let's pray. Lord, we just surrender our lives to you now. And Father, help us now to reflect even now on the idols that we're captivated by. Lord, help us to personalize our sin, to know that every sin that we commit is ultimately against you. Yet it is so important that we remember your grace, that you say, I don't condemn you. I paid. I made my son pay fully. Now go and sin no more. And Lord, as we are daily in your word, renew us, refresh us, and direct us and help us to cling on to the promise and look for the payoff. And in between, help us to enjoy the process because it's in the process where you show. It's in the process where you are changing us from one glory to the next. We thank you for your promises, but we thank you for the promises that strike us today. And I pray from this day forward that you will release many men, many women, many young men and women from their sins, that you may be glorified, that we may be set free in you. We pray in the matchless name of our King and our Savior, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's give him glory. Yes, hallelujah.